Hello, I'm Clive Johnson. Welcome to Impact, a podcast about how we can each bring about real change in the world and getting practical in making that happen. And hello, I'm Ellen Bins. A special welcome if you're listening for the first time and a big thank you to our new subscribers. Each week we look at one aspect of how we can connect our hearts to offer healing for others with our collective intention, prayers, and meditation and talk about critical happenings in our world that need our attention right now, some of which may not be making the headlines where you are. In the news that we'll be focusing on this week, uh, disasters in South America, a continuing relief effort in Morocco following the earthquake there back in September, and a special focus on what is happening in Sudan. We should say also that we are delighted as we start recording today to hear from the COP28 conference uh, in Dubai that is concluding there. That agreement has been reached on a move by all countries in the world to transition from fossil fuels by 2050, which was the original target date for carbon neutral when COP was begun. Uh, The language is a little bit more relaxed than some countries would like. And of course, the proof, as always, is going to be whether this gets translated into action But very encouraging news because this is actually the first time that there has been an agreement on such a mass scale on this particular topic. It's a move in the right direction. It is absolutely a move in the right direction. More on our news stories later. But first to our featured topic for this week. And we thought since we are a brand new podcast, we're getting to know you. You're hopefully getting to know us. And this week I have the joy of interviewing someone who I have very high regard for, and that is Ellen. So perhaps we could start with the basics. How do you like to introduce yourself? And can you also say a little bit about what drives you? Mm, Okay, what drives me? Um, How do I like to introduce myself? Well, you probably should know that I live outside of Chicago, Illinois, in Wheaton, Illinois. It's 30 miles west of the city. I grew up here. Mm -hmm. I live in the town that I grew up in, which is interesting. I'm the mother of four children. I am a widow for almost 10 years, if you can believe that. Yes. Um, I work in our family business. That's what I do during the day with my father, who's 96, (laughs) and he still comes to work every day. Um, And my passion is working with the labyrinth. And I've done that for over 20 years. I was introduced to the labyrinth via my work with inmates in our county jail. And yes, it's a long story, maybe a different episode for that. Um, That is a population that I am passionate about and really enjoyed working with them. And the labyrinth was a wonderful tool to use with them. And I also, because I was the only person doing that at the time, um, kind of became the person that people asked, how did you do that? And I've helped people all over the world get labyrinths into jails and prisons. Mm, amazing. How, right. how did you actually come to, to, to work in the prisons in the first place? What, what came to that field? Well, um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Birdman of Alcatraz. Oh, yes. Lancaster. Yes, yes. I saw that when I was young, and it really made a strong impact on me of how um, counterintuitive 
the process was. Mm. And um, I don't remember, he became brilliant with birds and um, he still wasn't released. Even in his old age, he was still incarcerated. And um, it just had a deep effect on me. And then when I was a senior in high school and had to do my senior rep paper, term paper, we had to choose a word. And there was a list of 20 words. And I chose the word recidivism with no idea what that meant. And did my term paper on that. It was titled, Let's Stick Up for Ex-Cons. And Brilliant. in it, I outlined, um, <laughs> again, how counterintuitive the process was and some ideas to reform that. And it's really fun to look back on that and see how many of those I've actually done in my 63 years of life. Wow. So um, that is how I became interested in the social organization in our county jail was run by someone in my church and uh -huh. she gave me the opportunity to volunteer in there. And I began working with the inmates in a stress management way and financial way. Cause my degree in college is in accounting. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And um, so uh, that led me to realize they needed some deep stress management. Mm -hmm. um, my minister bought a labyrinth and asked me to teach people about it. And in my investigation, I saw a woman in Monterey, California, who had taken it into the jail. And I thought, that is perfect. So I investigated a little bit more. They allowed me to bring it in. I then went on to train with Dr. Reverend Lauren Artris in mm -hmm. California. And the rest is kind of history as far as that goes. <laughs> wow, it's it's it took a, off. It's, it's it's a wonderful legacy that you've you've left there, isn't it? With 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 the labyrinth and undoubtedly I'm sure it has really changed many prisoners' lives and also has brought home this importance of rehabilitation in in in, in that circumstance. You then went on to co found a non profit organization called Sacred Ground. Right. Can you yeah, tell us it, a little bit about what that was about? I'm so proud of that. Um, one of the inmates who walked the labyrinth, she credited it for changing her life. Wow. And um, she went on to, to prison after the county jail. Uh, but when she got out, we stayed in touch the whole time. And she had one son, Eric, and in 2012, Eric was shot and murdered in Chicago. And so she called me when Eric was shot. And here this woman has lost her only child. Mm. And she said to me, Ellen, these, these kids are lost. They're in trouble. They need help. Can you bring the labyrinth down to the south side of Chicago? And I thought it was amazing that she could think of other Yes. Children yes. who were lost in this moment of her grief. And so we did. We had a vigil. Um, if you're familiar with Chicago, we marched down Martin Luther King Drive, which is a interesting Incredible. street in Chicago. And we were at 79th and Cottage Grove in the Grand Crossing area. Um, and from that day, we decided to focus our efforts in the Grand Crossing area. And we started the nonprofit called Sacred Ground Ministries. The reason it was called Sacred Ground was to emphasize that we're all on sacred ground, whether mm. you're on concrete in the inner city or on grass 
and a farm wherever it's all sacred ground and all life is sacred um, because that's a point that needs to be driven home for all of us and um, also to promote the nonviolent mission that we were yes. promoting. Yes. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's an incredible story. And she is doing incredible work to this day. She's amazing. Um, I encourage you to look it up, Sacred Ground Ministries. Perhaps we can put, uh, does she have a website? Yes, she does. Perhaps we can put a yes. link to her, her website. So proud of her. She is the real deal. Mm. No, we'll put that in the in the show notes if we if we can. Sure, we can. <laughs> so you you've, you've you mentioned the labyrinth several times, and you, you've done a lot of work with with the labyrinth over many years now. What does the labyrinth really mean to you? Why why has it been so helpful in the kind of work you've described in the prisons, in mm -hmm. work of sacred ground, and so on? We we probably should cover the labyrinth a little bit more because that's Definitely. how you and I met too. Oh, absolutely. Via that yeah. um, the labyrinth to me is a wonderful tool for integrating grief, finding focus. Um, I was attracted to it because there is no dogma attached to it. Um, it meets you where you are. It doesn't matter what your faith, what your religion, mm. um, you can mm. have no religion. It, it, it's um, welcoming and unifying. And if um, our listeners don't know, I encourage you to Google labyrinths and see them, a visual of what a labyrinth is. It's something that you walk meditatively. There's so many different designs. They can be in the ground. Mine that I took into the jail was canvas, uh -huh. 40 feet in diameter, diameter, um, 100 pounds. And they can be, you know, done in different ways, painted on concrete. They can be brick pavers. Um, some, sometimes what happens is after you're introduced to the labyrinth, you're going to start seeing them around or notice them. So listeners, beware. Indeed, you, you, indeed. They may come into your life. Um, and I'm sure, Clive, you and I will be referencing them many times I, in the I'm future. I'm sure we will definitely come. Perhaps have a special episode dedicated to yes. the labyrinths further, further down the line. And one of the most important projects that um, – you've been involved with in, involving the labyrinth is Legacy Labyrinth, um, which has created labyrinths in a wide range of places around the world. Can you give listeners a feeling of some of the legacies, as it were, that have been left by that project? And also say what makes each labyrinth so, or, or the nature of a Legacy Labyrinth special? Right. I am. Well, I think we'll get to this later, but I am the director of labyrinth activism for the Legacy Labyrinth Project. And the executive director, Chris Katzenmeyer, um, shared a vision that I created with the Global Healing Response, which I need to explain what that mm -hmm. is, too. Um, and my passion for collective healing and the science and quantum mechanics behind collective healing. So she asked me to join the organization and um, the legacy labyrinths that exist. There are eight of them. There will be nine soon. Um, they are labyrinths around the world 
that are connected, not just energetically, but also physically with the materials from each labyrinth exist in the other labyrinths. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, the, the theory being that we know that all labyrinths are connected around the world. There is um, an energetic connection for that, but um, kind of like people can be connected, but families are stronger or friendships are stronger. And when we talk about collective healing, probably in a different episode, um, we will learn more about why that's important. Mm. So when you unify via intention, these labyrinths, they become stronger. And each labyrinth has its own um, its own intention, like love or kindness or healing. Um, and you can go to the Legacy Labyrinth site and find out more about that. It's very powerful. We're hoping, you know, that it creates healing energy around the world. And again, we'll put the link uh, to, to Legacy right. on, on in the show notes, along with everything else we mentioned. Um, right. So you did mention then the, the Labyrinth, Labyrinth Activist Network, mm -hmm. uh, which um, I personally think is one of the most exciting Labyrinth-related initiatives at, at the moment. Can you explain what that's about? Yes, yeah, to do. <laughs> I'm very excited about it too. Um, the labyrinth movement really was energized in about 1995 by the Reverend Dr. Lauren Artris and um, Veritas is another organization that's important to the labyrinth movement started by her. And their tagline was for personal transformation. Uh -huh. And that is, as you know, Clive, that is an enormously important part of walking a labyrinth is for your, you know, going inward and finding your center and for your personal transformation. But I feel that the labyrinth can also be used collectively. And the first step in that is to find your personal transformation. Mm -hmm. And I use the word coherence from quantum mechanics to become individually coherent but then we can become collectively coherent and that's called entrainment. Um, if we walk together and with a focused intention, and that can be a really powerful energy, healing energy to send out into the world. And so labyrinth activism is a contemplative practice mm -hmm. done in a group um, that does send out that healing energy that I just spoke about to the world. It has a very specific objective just be yes. beyond your own contemplation yes. and your own. Yes. So it's using the labyrinth in a little different, like it's growing. Yeah. The labyrinth is growing, you know, another purpose. Exactly. I think it's, it's another area where you and I connect very well because that's been my interest as well, the labyrinth and bringing people together and having this collective effect. We also mentioned global healing response just a, yes. a little earlier, um, which links very nicely to what we've been saying about intention, I think. Um, another initiative that you've gifted to the world. What is global healing response? Yeah. What, what what might anyone that sort of comes to, to look at what you do there uh, expect? I'm, I'm really proud of the global healing response, and it's going to be 19 years 
that I've been doing it next year in 2024. Wow. Yes. Can you believe that? <laughs> um, it started because I trained in 2001, right before 9-11 with, um, in California with Dr. Artris. And so I was supposed to return there um, right as 9-11 happened in the United States. And here I was, a new facilitator, labyrinth facilitator, very excited. And I sat back thinking, okay, what, what are we going to do? How are we, what are we going to do together, you know, in response to 9-11? And people, people did beautiful things, of course, mm. around the world. Um, but we didn't do anything together. And um, I saw that as a missed opportunity. So I approached um, Reverend Archis and she's like, go for it. That sounds awesome. And she encouraged me to create the global healing response. And I sat on it and I tweaked it and I thought about how to introduce it to facilitators. And one morning I woke up and said, today's the day that I'm going to introduce this process. I did. And I had no idea that two weeks later I would need to implement it with Hurricane Katrina. Wow. Here in Louisiana. Wow. Mm. Yes. And yeah, they came um, across on the heels, isn't it? Of yeah. Yes. So we did that. We learned a lot. Um, the Labyrinth community did of what to do and what not to do. Um, but we it was a world, a global response. And and for want of a better way of putting this, you, you have a website, mm -hmm. uh, you have a newsletter, and you offer suggested forms of words that might be used as intentions, yes. prayers, yes. So poems. My motive was to create a very simple plan, um, but profound, that could be used in, in any emergency or disaster that we would all come together and offer our labyrinths on the same day. We would have the same prayer or intention that would be used around the world to offer healing to the people who were affected, but also sometimes these events can cause trauma mm. and anxiety in people that, who are not directly involved and the labyrinth can help with that. So um, in, in the effort to keep it simple so that everybody could, you know, implement it, um, we've responded to over 17 disasters and emergencies. Mm. And then um, I can tell you from my experience that the world has changed over the past 19 years because we used to have a response, oh, I don't know, every couple of months or twice a year that we would respond to. And then they just started coming too quickly. Yes, yes, yes. And um, it was difficult to respond to everything that was happening. So the resources are on the website. Uh, they're available to everyone. They're free. And as things started happening more quickly, I created more ongoing resources that could be used each quarter. So there's a, there's a focus for each. There's a theme for each year and there's a focus for each quarter that people who want to lead intentional walks can use these materials kind of like um, a Sunday school lesson. Yes. Yes. And so they it can be an ongoing ongoing process so we have this unified intention globally consistently around you know all the time and i i would strongly encourage listeners to go and have a look at uh, global hearing response website it's certainly something i've drawn on not not just for, for labyrinth work actually in, in, in what i do with intention it's not always related to the labyrinth so it's going to be relevant for other practices as well that's uh, my hope 
Yes. Ab absolutely. Um, but there is a tremendous wealth of resources there. And, and you've covered a lot of bases, haven't you, over that time? You know, the, these different uh, catastrophes, conflicts, mm -hmm. all manner of uh, situations that have needed responding to. I, I, I feel the same, that we are, that these things are happening more regularly. We, we hear it a lot about global warming, of course, and, um, you know, the intensity and the geographical spread of um, consequences of that. But it really does feel <laughs> it's yes. up. Um, yes. So that has, you know, it, it was, it's kind of one of those things where I, I did this for many years, not really knowing what I was doing, just following my intuition and what to do. And then it was in about 2019 that I started learning about the quantum mechanics of collective healing mm -hmm. and why it works and understanding more. And um, it's really fascinating to me and the possibilities of how to use this as we're doing right now are so hopeful yes. and encouraging. Yes, yes. That's, that's really uh, underlining a lot of what we we hope for, isn't it? Really, with exactly. What doing. The idea of the collective features strongly in most of what we know about healing and the power of intention. Do you have any specific thoughts that we haven't mentioned that, uh, or experiences that relate to this you, you'd like to mention? Well, I think what helps people understand the power of collective healing, and I use this example all the time, is that if you point three speakers toward each other that are playing the same music, which are basically waves, mm -hmm. sound waves, you don't get three times the sound, you get nine times the sound. And that's the power of us coming together why I say it's exponential and it's amplified. Because when we bring ourselves together in a unified intention, using, and we can, you know, we can go with different sources from our body. Most people refer to the electromagnetic fields coming from our heart mm -hmm. and the heart math. I use a lot of information from the Heart Math Institute. Sure. Another link we should put in our notes. Absolutely. They've done a lot of work on the connection between the electromagnetic fields of our heart extending beyond our bodies. But we can go to um, biophoton emissions. We each have those, you know, every cell in our body has light in it. And we, we do actually emit light and we read each other without knowing it. Um, but the waves that come, we can, we can use those to exponentially with the, with the intention that transcends, you know, division and, anger we have to stay in a place of high vibration and those high vibration emotions are love gratitude opens your heart um, forgiveness grace we can be very powerful and waking up to this just coming to to understand and as you say science which is opening up new discoveries all the time in this area often pointing to things that you know the yogis and others have known for millennia <laughs> Exactly. Science is, I see science is finding out what we've all known, that we're all connected. Exactly. It's so exciting, isn't it, that we can draw on this and explore this potential and, and really put it into practice in a, in a very powerful way. It's so hopeful and so leads to so many possibilities. Absolutely. Absolutely. So all of this speaks a lot about what leads your heart and your generosity to share 
share with and encourage others. Finally, perhaps with this in mind, and we could go on talking for so long, and I'm sure we'll come back to pick up on some of these topics in, in future episodes, but what do you particularly hope for this podcast, Impact? What, what do you hope we can achieve? And not talking about just you and I as hosts and the guests we come on, but we as a podcast community with our, our listeners as well. That is exactly um, what I, the podcast listeners is what I want to bring in. I want this to feel almost like an interactive podcast. Mm, mm. Um, we will give people intentions so that we will all be using a unified intention from week to week. I want people to feel that they can make a difference. It is possible. My tagline is powerful change can happen peacefully. And we, we can do that together and we are more powerful together. So I want to empower our listeners and let them know and maybe educate even a little bit, whatever um, little bit I know and you know that we are powerful. We can make a difference. And isn't doesn't this happen to you where somebody will, um, you'll watch a news story or you'll learn about something and at the end of it, you think, well, what can I do? Mm. How can I help? And um, we not only are going to talk about the news stories, but we're also going to talk about how we as a collective can help. Absolutely. And that's exciting to me to have this opportunity. It's very exciting. And, uh, you know, our tagline, really making a difference. That that really is, I guess, what we genuinely believe. Ultimately. Yes. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you, even though I personally know you a little bit. <laughs> There's always plenty to learn. Is there anything else before we close out that uh, you'd particularly like to mention? I would like to thank you, Clive, for contacting me to create this podcast. Bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm excited to be able to interview you and for listeners to find out the depth of your accomplishments and what you do. So stay tuned, listeners. The next time you listen to us, you'll hear about Clive. <laughs> we shall look forward to that. If you can keep me to a certain time limit, that is, you know, because I can, I can talk a lot. But yes, I'll we'll try. <laughs> but I, I think, I think uh, you and I together, we, we, we come from similar backgrounds, but we have different experiences. So that's one of the things that I, I particularly appreciate. I think we're going to share very effectively our different different perspectives and and certainly when we start interviewing many wonderful guests i'm sure and getting thoughts and feedback from our listeners we are all on a, a learning journey with this well i love that we're in two different parts of the world and hearing different things and we'll bring that perspective to our listeners and hopefully um attract people from both from all over the world mm, and absolutely. we are we will be tr truly global absolutely that's that's definitely the the aim well thank you so much and uh, we'll look forward to next time more to come right more to come you're listening to impact a podcast for anyone who believes in making a difference in the world through prayer healing and sending intention out into the world Join us as we focus attention on where healing is needed right now. Together, we change our world.
So let's take a look at what we've picked up from the news this week. And as we record, it's December 13th, 2023, and see where we might hone in with our prayers and intentions. And we thought we'd start with a special focus on a country that has often been in the news, but actually this year has slipped out of the news, certainly where I am, quite a lot, and that is Sudan. This week, there is some encouraging news coming out from a conference that took place in Djibouti, a neighboring country to Sudan, where mediators from African countries, uh, the so-called Intergovernmental Authority on Development, that's uh, IGAD, said that progress had been made to end the latest war. The warring parties, there are two main warring parties, agreed this past weekend to implement a ceasefire and to begin a political dialogue aimed at resolving what has been a very long-standing conflict. This involved the Sudanese army chief, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, agreeing to meet one-on-one with his rival, the head of the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, who is also widely known as Hameti. Hameti also agreed to this proposal, um, a meeting within 15 days to agree what are called confidence-building measures between the two sides that can launch a political process. Those are all the details that have come out of Djibouti uh, in the recent days. But we thought it's worthwhile taking a look at the background to what's been happening in Sudan. This latest war has raged since the beginning of April broke out into a full-scale armed conflict back on the 15th of April, which at the time was focused very much on the capital, Khartoum, and triggered waves of ethnic killings, particularly in the western region of Sudan, Darfur. Sudan now remains a very volatile country ever since it gained independence from Britain back in the 1950s. There have been coups virtually every decade and virtually an ongoing war or civil war throughout most of that time. The country split back in 2011 to create uh, a new country in the south, South Sudan, but uh, civil war has continued. So since this latest conflict, uh, General Abdel Fattah Burhan of the Sudanese military has become the de facto ruler of the country whereas General Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, the leader of the RSF, or Rapid Support Forces, has been fighting against him. Before all this, there had been a long-standing leader, a military leader who had seized power in a military coup. This was Omar al-Bashir, who seized power back in 1989, which at the time was in the middle of an ongoing 20-year civil war between North and South. Another civil war, which really did make the news, uh, the world headlines, broke out in the early 2000s in the Darfur region. But after 30 years in power, Bashir was finally ousted in another military coup back in 2019. And there was at that time promise of a democracy movement coming to an agreement to share power. It was always an uneasy alliance. Uh, a lot of tensions escalating as politicians were pushing for civilian rule coming into conflict with the the military generals. And back in October 2021, 
General Burhan, dissolved the power-sharing agreement, temporarily detaining the civilian prime minister, and at that time effectively taking control of the country. Since that time, the country has been run by a council of generals, and there has been very little move towards political talks and formation of a democratic government. The current violence was sparked by a disagreement over integrating the RSF into the military as part of a transition towards civilian rule. There had also been a lot of local disputes over land and natural resources, particularly in Darfur, which drove increased fighting and displacement last year. It's said that the war has displaced more than 6 million people, including over a million who've been forced to flee across borders, particularly into Ethiopia before the conflict there and into Chad. In recent months, Burhan declared that he would hold elections this year. These elections didn't happen. And it appears that ni- it appears clear that neither general had any intention of giving up on power to a civilian government. So there has been continued tensions between the military, which exploded into this current conflict starting back in April. Action on Armed Violence, an NGO that records, investigates and disseminates information about armed violence against civilians, has been monitoring what's been going on this year. As of June, which is the latest data we have, there had been 29 incidents of explosive violence reported, causing at least 430 civilian casualties, including well over 100 who were killed. And this is quite apart from the destruction of infrastructure and buildings. The cities, including Khartoum, have continued to be bombarded and the conflict has spread right across the country. And even before the recent clashes, Sudan was facing extreme weather shocks, social and political unrest and rising food prices. Meanwhile, rates of extreme levels of food insecurity affect 42% of Sudan's population at a time when the country's health sector is at risk of collapsing due to an acute shortage of medical supplies, water, and fuel. So the violence is also having catastrophic health consequences on displaced families. Since September 26, there have been 3,000 suspected cholera cases recorded across Sudan, resulting in 95 deaths. And the IRC-supported health clinics have also seen an over 31% increase in cases of malnutrition. Over 430,000 people have arrived over the border into Chad, almost 90% of which are women and children. The 2023 rainy season exasperated conditions, destroying shelters, increasing rates of waterbone diseases, and curbing the ability of humanitarian workers to deliver services in affected areas. Prior to the outbreak of war in Sudan, over 70,000 refugees had fled over the Ethiopian border into Sudan following ongoing conflict in the Tigray region. 31% of the refugees are children, with a high volume of unaccompanied minors who have often experienced trauma and abuse on their journey to Sudan. People need vital support, including food, 
protection and health care. Now, there have been several previous attempts to broker peace. For example, back in June, Egypt urged a peaceful dialogue to end the fighting between the paramilitary groups. In May, the two warring sides agreed to send negotiating teams to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia to start talks brokered by Riyadh and Washington. At least 16 ceasefire agreements followed that's since May this year, each one of which has collapsed. Negotiations have been suspended after the army withdrew its participation, accusing the RSF of a lack of commitment. So a lot of mistrust between um, the two sides. In the meantime, hundreds of ethnic Masalit civilians were reportedly killed just last month in Ardamata town in West Darfur by the RSF and their allied Arab militia. So our focused intention for Sudan is that the leaders of the warring sides in Sudan are moved to make good on their willingness to meet and seek a political rather than military resolution to their differences. Now, this is a very complicated picture as we've attempted to uh, describe. We will put in the show notes a number of links to websites that give a very clear briefing on what's been going on in Sudan now over many decades. But very much our intention is really to bring it back to the attention of our listeners, ourselves, and to make this a special focus for this week. So let's take a look at some of the other news we picked up this week and where we might home in with our prayers and intentions. So on a lighter note, um, I had heard a heartwarming story Sunday morning on the CBS morning show, which I'm sure many of our listeners love to watch. Um, And it was the story about the reuniting of two sisters who were fleeing war-ravaged Yugoslavia more than 20 years ago, and a stranger that they met on a plane who passed them an envelope. The outside of the envelope said, I hope your stay in America will be a safe and happy one. And it was signed, a friend from the plane, Tracy. And inside the envelope was a $100 bill. One of the sisters recalled the kindness being an inspiration for always paying kindness forward and said they couldn't believe that somebody had so much empathy. So this week, following an appeal to find Tracy through the Minneapolis Star Tribune, Ada and Vanja Zuge were reunited with Tracy Peck from Blaine, Minnesota. And they said, we just stood there and hugged and cried, Peck said. I just felt such a deep love for them. Peck gave away $100 to total strangers, but she says the gifts she's gotten in return is far more precious. They've taught me the slightest thing that you can do for someone. You don't realize what impact that's going to have on their life. We have no idea. But if you're lucky, maybe someday you will have an idea And she was lucky to find out. And and I just thought in this time of when we're hearing about so much war and conflict, we can see that doing even the smallest thing could make an impact. Mm, mm. It's such a beautiful story, isn't it, that one? I love it, yes. Absolutely. And very often we don't know, of course. We don't know what is being paid forward 
So uh, nope. a really, a really wonderful story. Turning attention now to Southern America. Sadly, last week, a gold mine in southeastern Venezuela, close to an indigenous community there, collapsed. It's known that at least 12 people have died. This followed a landslide in the area of Paraiba de San Jose de Vedampa. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly, where the mining was taking place in Venezuela's Bolivar state, close to the border with Brazil. A lot of informal mining operations, not conforming necessarily with um, safety standards, have flourished in Venezuela, which is a, a very poor country, very weak economy, which has made disasters of this kind much more of a risk. Thousands of miners work in these mines to extract lucrative metals such as gold in usually unsafe conditions. And further south in Brazil, another tragic story, news reports saying that a fire in a camp belonging to Brazil's landless workers movement, MST, in the northern state of Para, killed nine people and left eight injured over the weekend. The incident was caused by a short circuit in the electrical network during the installation of internet wiring in the rural farmers' camp. And in Papua New Guinea, it's uh, said that they have a record number of 6,500 cases, around 18 new HIV infections each day. Poor awareness and lack of funds available for preventative measures, uh, they say, have, have contributed to this increase. So it's a reminder that um, this disease is still out there and growing in some parts of the world. Absolutely. Still a major killer. And turning our attention to a story that was very much in the news several months ago, and this is an example of one of those stories that often goes off of the radar as other things happen. You might recall back in September that there was a very powerful earthquake, Richter 7.2 earthquake that struck uh, in the Atlas Mountains in Morocco, about 70 kilometers southwest of Marrakesh. Estimates now put the dead at over 3,000. At the time, it was thought that several hundred had died, but now it's known that there were thousands who lost their lives, as well as many buildings being destroyed, including in cities as far away as Marrakesh. The initial uh, response to the earthquake was encouraging. Food, medicines, clothing and various other essentials were pouring in from other Moroccans and charitable organisations. A certain amount of international aid was received, although um, reports say that the Moroccans were really quite keen to look after themselves. However, this outpouring of support has dwindled in recent months, leaving those residents who've been displaced from their homes grappling with diminishing supplies and scarce aid provisions, just as winter is now coming, uh, with freezing temperatures up in the mountains often going below, often going below freezing. So many thousands still homeless and lacking vital food and medicines as they face a bitter winter. 
So we were seeing that natural disasters and major disasters like mine collapses are not often making the news where we are, nor the aftermath of the disasters that occurred weeks or months earlier. We can offer intention for where rescue efforts are best directed and on care for the grieving. It's a reminder too, as we said, that viruses like HIV are still killing thousands each year, even if they're not reported widely. So intention for wisdom for those working to educate, direct limited resources such as vaccines, and know best where to direct these leaders' efforts. We need awareness too for us and others to not be blind to these continuing needs. I think the power of intention and empathy is so vividly shown in in the plane story that we just talked about. Um, it shows we can do something to make a difference. That was such an inspiring story, I thought. And finally, another good news story to end with. Around a dozen nonprofit organizations have found themselves to be unexpected recipients of the generous will of a man who died two years ago, leaving no will other than a wish for his estate to go to charity. An incredible $13 million left by Terry Kahn, who worked for 30 years for the Veterans Administration, has been paid out to charities who took a call from the attorney who's handling his estate. Terry had no immediate family and was said to be very frugal, living in a very modest house in southern Indianapolis and not even buying a mobile phone as he said they were too expensive. His attorney said, he's smiling someplace. There's no doubt about it. He will be getting a kick out of this. And I wouldn't mind betting that many of the folks in those nonprofits who've benefited from Terry's generosity will be smiling too. It's amazing how many lives he changed and was so modest about it. Extraordinary, isn't it? Absolutely extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Another, another mm -hmm. wonderful story. That about wraps it up for this week. Thank you for listening and for sharing with us and holding intentions. We look forward to connecting again next time. And in the meantime, thank you, go well, stay safe. And remember, we're more powerful together. Impact is presented by Ellen Vince and Clive Johnson and produced by Impact Productions. Our theme music is by Chris Collins and our logo artwork is by Auto Classic. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible or your favorite podcast provider. We're a non-commercial podcast dedicated to people of any faith tradition or none who yearn for healing in our troubled world. Please pass on the word so others may join us in making an impact. Thank you for listening.